Well, good evening. It's always a mixture of pleasure and fear to come before the children of God and open the word. And fear, I'm always mindful of James 3.1. We should not many desire to be teachers knowing that we'll be held to a stricter condemnation. But that begs the question, who can be a follower of Jesus Christ and not be a teacher? Even if we're but a, an hour or two old in the Lord, if we look around, surely there is somebody the Lord is sending to follow us. We're all called to be students of the word and teachers. And yet that admonition is there to, I think, maintain a, a healthy fear. I've got to say that I, I am comforted with the worship service this morning and the message our brother gave. It's evident that the, the spirit was working as we spoke considerably on the love of God, on uh, a bridegroom and on a bride and on wedding and marriage. Uh, a couple weeks ago, although I was looking towards a different message, I fell upon a passage which is dovetailed in perfectly with the message of this morning. It's a glorious passage and one in which we see uh, God, his Christ, and the church. And it's all about the marriage. It's one about the marriage of the coming king and his bride. It's Psalm 45. And to put it in a little bit of context, I'm going to talk about the preceding psalms and the following psalms. The four psalms which precede the 45th psalm, 41 through 44, are a picture of the church age. In 41, the psalmist says, I am a sinner surrounded by enemies and false friends. In, that, in the ninth verse of that psalm, we find the clear picture of Judas, uh, the friend who betrayed. In the 42nd psalm, it's trusting God whilst in exile, actually a thirsting after God, I know that we could, with vigor, always make that claim that we're thirsting after God. The 43rd Psalm is a cry for deliverance, uh, an advocacy of, uh, by God for defense. Uh, in the 44th Psalm, remembering former times of delivery, uh, voicing current troubles and pleading for deliverance from God. And then the three Psalms which follow the 45th, in 46, I think the seven and eight, they're all a picture of the millennium, of the millennial reign of Christ. In 46, God is present. God is now. He's the strength and refuge, clearly portrayed. The millennium is, is now. In 47, God is king of all the earth, and the earth has peace. And why does it have peace? Well, we keep praying for peace, but no peace will exist on this earth until the Prince of Peace comes. But in the 47th, the Prince of Peace has come. In the 48th Psalm, it tells us, Great is the Lord. His holy city is an holy mountain, a stronghold high and lifted up, uh, the joy of the whole earth. Psalm 45 is situated right in the middle of that, and it is a picture of something that is soon to happen. As I look around and we read the headlines of today and we read Scripture, I see that we're in the closing, the waning seconds of the 44th Psalm. We're in that, that time of the church, expectantly waiting the coming king. The one will come and rescue us and take us from this world. 
They say that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament in the New Testament revealed. Well, we're certainly going to look at a, what would be a New Testament theme in the Old Testament. It's not, it's not very much concealed, at least from our vantage point. But uh, I want to dig, just dig into that. Before I do, because we may run out of time before I finish, I'll, I'm going to give an overview of something I read by a named, man named William Benny, and he put it so beautifully. Eh? It's really about the Psalms as a whole, but then he just really narrows in on this. In just, in just a few words, he grabs the essence, the truth, the beauty of this Psalm and puts it there for us to see. Uh, before we do that, I'll, I'll read through the Psalm, the, the 45th Psalm, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. Psalm 45, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon thy lips. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are the, in the heart of the king's enemy. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. All thy garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made thee glad. King's daughters are among thy noble ladies. At thy right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down before him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will entreat your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to thee. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give thee thanks forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth that we may know you. We thank you for this beautiful portrayal of your son. We look forward to that day when this psalm will be completed. We yearn for the one who loves us. We ask that you will touch our hearts tonight, that we may come to a fuller, more deeper understanding that we may be prepared 
that we may be spotless and pure before the bridegroom. Again, be with us tonight. Strengthen us. Let your spirit lead. Let it be your words that are heard and none other. And all this by the name, that precious name, the one we study tonight, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. William Benny, uh, writing again on the Psalms in general, and then he focuses in on this one. I just want to read what he wrote. The Psalter, which sets forth so much truth respecting the person and work of Christ. Truth more precious than gold and sweeter than the honeycomb is not silent respecting the bonds subsisting between him and his people. The mystical union between Christ and the church. When a prince sets his affections on a woman of lowly rank and takes her home to be his wife, the two are so united that his debts become his. His wealth and honors become hers. Now that there is formed between Christ and the church, between Christ and every soul that will consent to receive him, a connection of which the most intimate of all natural relations is the analog and type, we have already found to be not only taught in the Psalms, but to be implied in the very structure of many of them. He takes his people's sins upon him, and they receive the right to become the sons of God, the one Spirit of God, wherewith he was baptized without measure, dwells in them according to the measure of the grace that is given them. I will only add further that this union, besides being implied on so many places, is expressly set forth in one most glorious psalm, the nuptial song of Christ in the church, which has for its peculiar theme the home bringing of Christ's elect, that they may be joined to him in a union that will survive the everlasting hills. Again, this, this psalm is a heavenly wedding song rejoicing in the union of Christ the bridegroom and his bride the church. Nestled amongst the other seven psalms we discussed, those depicting the church age and those depicting the millennial kingdom. This one is of the redemption of the bride, the removal of the bride and her being taken to the home of the bridegroom. The opening verse is really just a preface. The writer is so stirred up that he's going to talk about what he's going to talk about and the wonder and the glory of it. In the first verse, my heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. This writer is overjoyed to speak on this matter, indicting. The rendering of the Hebrew word is bubbling up like an artesian well flowing forth and bursting out. The, the writer can't contain himself. He's amazed at what's pouring forth. His tongue is ready. We, of course, could never say that unless we were stirred up, unless we were inspired by the Spirit. Inspired, that word says it all, doesn't it? We know that all scripture is inspired. That means in-breathed, God-breathed. If we're going to address a good matter, 
we would need to be stirred up. As one put it, he speaks here of a good matter, or in the Middle English, a, a good spell, or if you will, the gospel. Indeed, this whole glorious psalm is, is the gospel. It's the culmination of the gospel. What could stimulate our hearts? So we get stimulated over many things, some of relative importance, some rather trivial. What can stir us up more than the Spirit drawing us to great truths? You know, it's the beauty of the worship service. We see the Spirit moving and hearts broken, the Lord high and lifted up, and we're stirred. It's the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're His children. And these emotions come bubbling up, and we, we can't contain them, even as this writer can't contain it here. And what is it? It's the power of the Spirit. What is Zechariah 4, 6? You know, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. Without the Spirit, we're, we're gutless. We have no power. And I was thinking about that, and I reflected on another address, the same address, 4, 6, different block, different book. Hosea 4.6, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. The one's the antidote for the other, isn't it? If we let the Spirit draw us under the truths, we see these beautiful things, and He speaks to us, and we're stirred up. The Holy Spirit, you know, the one that this psalm is written about, what did He say? I will send you the Comforter, the one who will guide you into all truth. And in this first verse, if it is a good matter and the Spirit is speaking, well, then he's going to give it good workmanship, which, again, is what this writer is talking about. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. We talk about the writers of Scripture, but they're not really the writers, are they? They're really just but the pen being held by the, the hand of God. And what a glorious work this psalm is in this preface. We're going to see that it's, it pictures the king. It pictures his wedding, his bride, his victory, his majesty, his glory, his kingdom, his everlasting rule. Hallelujah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, pictured beautifully in this psalm. In the second verse, the, the writer gets around to begin to describe the bridegroom himself. And he says, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. You know, we spoke briefly about this this morning. Um, Isaiah 53, it says, He has no uh, comeliness, no form that we should desire him. It's not talking about outward beauty or something that man would think is beautiful. No, it's, it's inward. It's his nature. It's his perfection. It's his submission to the Father. It's his complete lack of stain, lack of sin. That's the beauty. And if we behold that, if we behold his beauty, it blinds us to all the other things that we might think have some beauty in this world. No, no doubt about it, God has given us many beautiful things here to admire. But if we stare intently at him, it all fades away. How did the hymn writer put it? And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lest, of course, we look away. But if we look at his beauty, his comeliness, his obedience, we see that great beauty, his glory and his grace. 
And, and how much glory, how much grace? What does it say in Colossians 2, that in him the fullness of deity dwells? And a couple verses later it says, what, what do we acquire by that through his perfection? That we, though being dead in transgressions, are made alive together with Christ? I'd say that makes him pretty fair to a lost sinner condemned to death. I know when I look at it, that's the beauty I see. When I look in the mirror and see me, the wretch, I look upon the fair one, fairer than the children of men, and there's a beauty. Grace is poured into the, his lips. We spoke of his lips this morning. We spoke of lips of scarlet, the lips of Jesus anointed with grace. the words that pour out of those lips. Brother mentioned John 5, 24. If you hear my words and believe in him who sent me, you'll have everlasting life. You'll not come into judgment, but have already passed from death unto life. Wonderful words of life. The words of Jesus. What does John tell us the word is? Well, it's Jesus. He has the words of eternal life. It's Peter said, where else can we go? They're the ones who have the words of eternal life. In Hebrews, a beautiful picture of Messiah throughout the book, talks out at the beginning in the first chapter was saying that Messiah is the exact representation, the character of God. And the grace, because of the beauty and the power, God has blessed him forever and ever. In the next verse, the third verse, the father is speaking to his son, the warrior king. He's giving him instructions and to send him on a rescue mission and a conquest. In verse 3, he says, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Again, referring to the Hebrews, we're told that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's kind of scary stuff. The next verse in Hebrews tells us that all things are laid open and bare. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to deal. most mighty and glorious. The Father sends him out with the sword. You see him pictured in Revelation, the sword proceeding from his mouth. Again, the word, the words of Jesus, both that bless and warn and instruct. In the fourth verse, the Father continues in his instruction. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Again, further instructions from the father to his son. In fact, it's, it, it speaks of prophecy to be fulfilled. In the 52nd uh, chapter of Isaiah, really just before the discussion of the suffering servant, Father says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. 
And tell us them, ride in thy majesty, ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. Truth, meekness, and righteousness. The gospel itself is truth, meekness, and righteousness. What is it that draw men to Christ? Men are brought to Christ because he is truth. Oh, we get suckered in from time to time. Sometimes we believe what we want to believe, but we seek after truth. We desire to trust in truth. And we're brought to believe in Christ because he is truth. How did Christ pray in his high priestly prayer to the Father about us? Sanctify them in truth. And then declaring, thy word is truth. And again, John's one who tells us Jesus is the word. Sanctified in Christ. Romans 8 verse 29 says we're going to be, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. The sanctification. But we're brought to believe in Christ because he is truth. Meekness. How's that in the gospel? Well, we're brought to learn from Christ because of his meekness. Though he's all powerful and he has this revealing sword, how does he deal with those who come to learn with meekness, with love? <laughs> his forbearance with us foolish students he contends with us repeatedly, particularly if we come with pure in heart, contrite, seeking the truth that we might believe in him. He deals with us gently. Romans says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, his meekness. We learn to accept instruction because of it. Righteousness. We respect what is righteousness. We are brought to submit to him because we recognize that he is righteous, that he rules with equity. My brother mentioned this morning as he thought about Job, knowing that his redeemer lives. Job also said of his redeemer, though he slay me, yet will I Praise him. For he knew, even in his own anguish and suffering, that God was righteous and just. We can submit to one who, though their hand may be heavy upon us at times, we know that in meekness and in truth, they're just. And our God is just and deals with us equitably. Well, that can be a fearful thing if we deserve rebuke. And scripture is certainly full of that as well. But we're brought to submit because he is righteous and he rules justly. The verse finishes, within thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things in the King James. And the NASB reveal awesome things. He knows the truth and he reveals the truth and removes the chaff and burns away the dross. Well, that could be painful. I sometimes tell people who've been brought to a saving knowledge of Christ that the pain is about to begin. The sculptor is going to pick up the hammer and the chisel and start to knock away all the things that are not pleasing, that 
don't have the beauty that the master craftsman, the artisan would have in the statue he's forming. His hand reveals these things. He uses his word to have us see truth, to prick our hearts, sometimes to startle our conscience, even to fan the, the flames of, of fear. Godly fear is a, is a good thing. I mentioned coming before you in fear to share the word of God. It's, it's good to have a godly fear where you seek the help of the one who is there to succor us, to nurse us, to guide us, to strengthen us. If we go in weakness, he comes in his strength. If we see his truth, he can quicken our dead eyes and we can begin to see ourselves as he sees us. Oh, and then the terror ensues and we're driven to the horns of the altar and to seek forgiveness for our failures, for strength from the Lord, for closeness to draw nigh unto him. It's a good motivator if we're listening and paying attention. And once we're laid bare, we can appreciate and seek the truth in both in meekness and righteousness because he's fair and equitable. In the fifth verse, we're told of his arrows. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Again, sharp arrows in the hearts of the king's enemy may well be said to characterize the gospel as well. To actually characterize the effect of the gospel on the entire world. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. For some, those arrows in those hearts in which the Holy Spirit is stirred the heart, softened the ground, prepared it, made it fertile and ready for seed. Oh, the arrows that strike hurt. A heart would be broken. And a conscience would drive one to the ground in repentance. But then only then the Lord will restore them, lift them restored, renewed, made alive in Christ. And those who are perishing, those who reject, reject the entreat of God, the plea of the gospel, well, those arrows in the heart bring forth a fatal wound. They'll fall and fall all. It's a wound which will take them down from which they, there is no remedy and no recovery. All will be felled by the arrows of the king. The question, will we allow the wound to draw us to him that he might bind us up and heal us, refresh, restore, renew us, and make us alive in Christ? Or will our pride well up and we reject him? All will fall in, under the arrows of the king, some in worship and in praise, and some who say, we will not have this man to rule over us. The effect of that wound will be eternal separation and death. Though this is a glorious psalm which speaks of the marriage of the king, there's still the picture of what befalls those who reject him. In the next verse, the results 
of the riding forth of the king are proclaimed by the father. The victory is secure. The battle has been won. The king's taking his throne. In the sixth verse, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Paul quotes it. The writer to the Hebrews quotes this in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. In the next verse as well. And there it's most clearly ascribed to the Father. It proves Messiah is God and that his reign is eternal. All things are going to be put under his feet, as we're told. In Isaiah 9, 7, it tells us, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Thy scepter, the symbol of authority, is rightness. Again, the very character of God is justice. Oh, it's in harmony with his other attributes, but his justice is pure. And Mr. Calvin was willing to sacrifice some of the attributes of, of God on the sacrifice of the sovereignty of God, elevating it above all else, which interestingly enough, denigrates the sovereignty of God. God says, I desire that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. If God's not fully vested in that statement, it, it means he's unjust, it means he's untruthful, and we, we know that's not possible. I can't reconcile how the sovereignty of God and the election of saints is made perfect in God. But even if I have a problem with it, God doesn't. If God decides to let a soul make a choice, that's his sovereign right. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter, righteous. In verse 7, thou lovest righteousness and hateth, hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Because of his rightness, he's the only worthy king. His life without sin is, is manifest. It's evidence in that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Jesus as prophet, priest, and king in his first advent, he was prophet. He represented God to mankind. Jesus himself spoke of it in the 22nd Psalm. I have borne witness of thee amongst my brethren. Currently, he's our high priest, as we've spoken of from the book of Hebrews, the perfect high priest where he ever liveth to make intercession, as we're told in the seventh chapter. We have a high priest who understands us, who lived a life in the flesh as us, yet without sin. So he's able to understand. Interestingly, also, he knows the full weight of temptation. You know, if you think about it in physical terms, unless you withstand the full force of a pressure. You can't define what that pressure, what that force is. He withstood it all and did not fail. So Christ alone knows the full strength, the full force of temptations, trials, and tribulations. We suffer through them and we, we, we think we understand how bad it is, but 
We never are taken to the end of it. Christ was. He fully understood the strength of temptation. In the future, I think very soon, perhaps before I finish this message, Jesus is coming as king. Well, he's going to come and collect his bride first before he takes possession of the earth. But this next phase is going to happen very soon. You know, in the past, God prepared righteous men. He raised up righteous prophets, and he held them to high account to be faithful. Many, if they were disobedient, paid with their lives. He demanded that the priests would be righteous men, they who would represent mankind to him. Indeed, the high priest would be struck dead if he went into the temple with unconfessed sin, with sin which had not been handled, which was his own sin. And if we talk about man as a king, who's worthy? If even David, a man after God's own heart, we see his massive failure. There's no king but King Jesus. Because he's the perfect high priest, righteous without sin, hating very sin, God has anointed him with the oil of gladness far above the priesthood of men, the kingdom of men. You know, this morning we referred to him as a man of sorrows, and it's true that in his travail as a suffering servant, I'm sure there was sorrow involved. He sorrowed at the tomb of Lazarus as he saw the sadness of those gathered to mourn. He looked over Jerusalem and wept. He knew sorrow, but sorrow no more. For the Father has anointed him with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And he shares it with thee. He said, I came that your joy may be made complete and full, full in him. What did he share? He shared with us the Holy Spirit. You know, the, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy, as Galatians 5 tells us. Like the lowly woman taken and married to the prince, what are the blessings we receive for joined to the bridegroom? Verse 8 continues in the description of of the king. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee clad. Further describing his anointing and certainly the references to burial spices. In the 19th chapter of John we're told of Joseph of Arimathea brought 75 pounds of, of myrrh and aloes. Myrrh must be crushed to release its fragrance. It releases a fragrance which brings knowledge of an event. Sadness and death, but also the sweet fragrance. We're called the fragrance of Christ unto those who are being saved and unto those who are perishing. Death unto death. I see that as Christ has brought death to death. Where is the victory of death? It's been swallowed up in Christ. And the sweet fragrance of life unto life for those who are perishing. They have mortal life. And yet we can show them life unto life. Eternal life added. I'm not sure what the, uh, the ivory palaces, the uh, commentators were all over the place, instrumentation or repositories for the sweet clothes. 
but the clothes represented myrrh, his sacrifice. Aloes, you see, is a healing balm, a herb of healing. Cassia and Simeon, a cinnamon, again, fragrance. The king's daughters were among the honorable women, upright upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Again, the, the opinions were all over the place here, and I, I'll warn you right up front, um, this is the time to be a Berean. When I read this, I'm troubled. I see many who, it appears to me, rest the scriptures to make it fit with something they believe. Well, I don't want to hide behind it. I'll say right up front, I don't think that the bride of Christ is all believers. I think it's a subset. I see the queen separate here from the honorable women. Oh, as we read through this psalm, they're all brought into the palace of the king. Don't get me wrong, I, faith alone in Christ alone, there's only one way to justification, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. When I see this differentiation here, and I see instructions, as we'll see in the next one, the next several verses, there's a reason that warnings are given. You can rebuke me or throw something at me. I, I know that perhaps that's a little bit out of the ordinary, but as I, a number of years ago, began to read the parables of Jesus, I see these, these warnings and instruction. Certainly, they're all brought into the palace of the king. The queen herself is standing at his right hand in gold of Ophir. Not just gold, but the most desired gold, the gold of Ophir. As the theologians tell us, a sign of deity. The next verse, hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thy ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Hearken, it's an imperative. Open your ears, listen. It reminds me of Jesus saying, he who has ears, let him hear. If we're going to apprehend the understanding of God, we do need to listen. And once we have awoken up and startled by the truth, and we would seek to understand what we're being told. Who are her people? She is of the earth, so it's the inhabitants of the world. Who is her father? Well, she's of the world, it's going to be Satan. She's instructed, forget also thine people in thy father's house. If we look back with fondness at the world, we stand the risk of suffering. Lot's wife looked back and suffered. About the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea. They sought to appoint a, a captain to take them back into Egypt, the type of the world. Oh, is God sorely displeased? Why is the warning and instruction here? Because it's needed, and obedience would have some benefit to the one who heard and obeyed. Daughter, virgin, honorable women, whatever the case, incline your ear and listen. Forget your people. Verse 11 seems to look back at that. So, the word so, as in therefore or because of this, it seems to say if there's obedience to the admonition in verse 10, then shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. The pronouns here are individual. You'll notice it's, it's one of the reasons I like the King James. It says thy, it says thou, that's not multiple. That's not a group of people. That's an individual. He's speaking to us as individuals. If it had been ye or you, it could have been the group at large. 
Worship thou him. And why should we obey? Because he's Lord and Master. Jesus said, if you love me, why do you not keep my commands? If we don't obey, we're not worshiping Christ. We're worshiping ourselves. We've placed ourselves at a higher, of, of higher value. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thee, entreat thy favor. Tyre, a type of the wealthy nations, those plying the trade routes of the sea, they shall come bearing gifts. I see a, a clear picture. This is prophecy of what's going to happen in the millennium. In Isaiah chapter 60, we're told that the nations will bring wealth. They'll bring their wealth. Isaiah 60, verse 5 and verses 9 to 14. And in that same chapter, we see what's going to happen to those who refuse. They'll perish. They'll be utterly ruined. It also brings to mind what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Philadelphia. I will bring those who say they are Jews but are not. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and know that I have loved you. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold, in verse 13. Whether as daughter or bride, she is glorious within. Again, beauty is inward of a righteous, obedient heart. Inward rightness is always manifested in an outward obedience. Her clothing is of wrought gold. Gold, again, being a picture of deity. She's perhaps married to the king, that it is wrought signifies it's well worked. Again, reminding us that though we're not saved by works, we're told our raiments are going to be an indication, the white raiments of the saints in the tribulation, evidence of their good works. The good news is, is, the bride, the bridal party, all the companions are all brought into the groom's home, into the palace. She shall be brought into the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. It's the imperative, she shall be brought. Even as God brought Eve unto Adam, and only God can bring. We know that no one can come to Christ, but the Father draws him and brings him. Some say that since the clothing has already been described when it says she shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework, it should be read, brought unto the king on raiment of needlework. Again, not that she comes to the king because of her good works, but her good works go lay down and are manifest before her as she is brought in glory into the presence of the king. The virgin, her companions that follow, again, they're separate. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall, again the imperative, be brought unto thee. They are successfully brought to the king. Schofield felt that these virgins were the Jewish remnant, perhaps. Maybe he was influenced by Darby, who felt the bride was Jerusalem, and the virgins were the cities of Judah. Uh, perhaps in the, for the Old Testament, that was their picture, but we see it, of course, those who will be joined to the king. 
Verse 15, with gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. You know, when sorrow or sadness for failure uh, bring pain or loss, how beautiful it is when that problem is brought to a happy, successful resolution. Jesus spoke of in his parables about how with the lost sheep or the lost coin or the lost son, there was universal celebration, rejoicing. We're all dead in sin, but we've been made alive together in Christ. Brother mentioned this morning, John 6, 37, all the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. They shall all enter the king's palace, again in the imperative, regardless of our position in the kingdom, all in Christ enter the palace. Brings us to the conclusion. The final two verses, uh, again, are from the Father, directed to the bridegroom, to the king eternal. In the Hebrew, all the pronouns are masculine. The promises are eternal. They're universal. No earthly king in sight. It's said that some see Solomon in this psalm. It's said of them, they're short-sighted. There are some who see Solomon and Christ. I characterize them as being cross-eyed. A well-trained, a focused spiritual eye here can only see Christ. It is Christ being spoken of here, and it is, again, a fulfillment of prophecy that Messiah made of himself. Again, going back to Psalm 22. After having said to the Father, I bore witness of you amongst my brethren. A few verses later in Psalm 22, 22, he says, From thee comes my praise in the great assembly. He receives his praise from the Father, and here he receives it in verse 16. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. Speaking of the progeny of Christ replacing the, the patriarchs, though the patriarchs held a place of prominence, great reverence amongst the Jew, and they were necessary for the lineage of Christ and fulfilled prophecy, their prominence will be eclipsed, replaced by the progeny of Messiah, according to this psalm. Again, as spoken by Isaiah in the ninth chapter, there shall be no end to the increase of his government or peace to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Again, a revisiting to the sixth and seventh verse of this psalm where he, he had the right scepter and he lovest righteousness. It is the right of Messiah to assign princes. It's bestowed upon him here by the Father to set princes throughout the entire earth. If you recall Luke 19, the servants, the ones with the minas, the one said, here, Master, is the one you gave me and the ten it earned. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He told him, you'll rule over ten cities and the other five. But with the worthless servant, what he had was taken. It's interesting, the first servant ruled over ten cities. He kept the ten minas. And he gained an eleventh, which was forfeited by the worthless servant. That worthless servant wasn't put to death. It's not a picture 
of the lost. Immediately after his rebuke, though he's cast into the darkness outside, and again, I don't see that as a picture of eternal separation. I see he's outside in the kingdom age, that there's a suffering that exists. Immediately after that rebuke, what does Jesus tell us? The master says, but as for those who would not have me to rule over them, bring them and slay them in my presence. Sobering. The final verse, the capstone, verse 17, I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. The psalm began with praise for Messiah, for bridegroom, and fittingly it ends. And it also includes the promise that this praise will be an eternal refrain. All saints will participate in praise the one who humbled himself, who took the lowest position, who became servant of all, who became sacrifice for all. He's elevated and lifted up, made high, the preeminent one, prototokos. Above all, all things will be put under his feet. There's a scarlet thread of redemption that runs through the Bible. <laughs> Genesis to Revelation. It's beautiful thread like the thread that hung from the window for Rahab. This beautiful psalm is a capstone, the culmination of the scarlet thread of redemption. The bridegroom is wed. He has possession of his kingdom. The princes are in place, and the praise has begun. Hallelujah. Hallelujah and praise to the Lamb who is worthy. Heavenly Father, we give praise and glory to you. Thank you for the work of a ready writer, one inspired and stirred by the Spirit, that he might give us visions of glory, of the one we seek to see, the one with the pierced hands and feet. Oh, lift it up high and mighty, glorious, King of kings and Lord of lords. We worship him and give thanks to you, Father. We pray that you will touch and stir hearts. We perceive that seconds away this fulfillment of this psalm. We anxiously await and pray for the return of the King. We glorify you and give thanks in the name of the Savior about whom this psalm is written, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.